Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Amen. Thank you, guys. God's Word says the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. Amen. There's something about stripped-down worship that reminds you that this is not about us and our entertainment and us getting amped up and all of that kind of stuff. This is about declaring God's truth to each other and declaring it back to Him and leading each other to celebrate our great God and what He has done for us. And I just want to thank Derek, Amy, Derek, Jason. Uh, thank you guys so much for leading us while Corey is away. So, so appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to move this a little bit because I am claustrophobic and I just need a little bit of space. Let me ask you a question this morning. The question is this, does God have plans for the future? Yes, he does. The question is, are you a part of those Plans. Ephesians 1.9 says that God has been unveiling the mystery of his will. He's in the fullness of time. He is going to gather all things together, unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth to himself. He's bringing it back. That's good news, isn't it? Later on in verse 14, we read that we, those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, they have a guaranteed inheritance that is being kept in heaven for them. It's waiting for you. That is good news. Reading on, John 14, uh, 1 to 3, Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for you. Not only is he preparing that place, but he's coming for you. He's coming back for you to bring you to himself. He's going to take you there with him. 1 Thessalonians 4, we read, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Oh, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Can you imagine? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's look at one more. This is, this is good, right? This is very good. Revelation 21. John writes of what was revealed to him by God, and he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of, with, of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself, God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you have some tears that need to be wiped away? Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's Isaiah 55. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God. He will be my son. What does that do to you? It evokes something inside. Does it not? It it, kind of has to. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, the, the one through whom we are brought back to God the Father, then you are recipient of these promises. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged. I'm invigorated by this. It's never happened to me before, but I imagine this is this winning the lottery. If I play the lottery, then I guess I have one chance in a billion or whatever it is. I have zero chance because I don't play. But I imagine finding out that you won the lottery would be a little bit like this, only this is far, far better. What a difference hope makes. What a difference that little window into the future, seeing out there and knowing that there are good things on the horizon, what a difference that makes in the way you approach life in the here and now, right? Paul was given a little window into that future. Now, he was there. He was being held in Fort Antonia partly for his own protection, partly because the Roman authorities didn't know what to do with this guy because they didn't, they didn't see any crime that he really committed, at least none deserving of death. But in Acts 23.11, we read that the Lord visited him in the night. And the Lord tells him, take courage. Not only take courage, but hey, Paul, as you testified of me in Jerusalem, so you were also going to testify In Rome, do you know what that meant? That meant Jerusalem was not his last stop. No, he's going to go on. He's going to go to the place that he wanted to go. And what's more, when he gets there, he's going to be able to do the thing that he wanted so badly to do there, and that is testify to the hope that he has in Jesus Christ to the Romans. This must have been incredibly, incredibly encouraging to Paul. What an amazing thing it is to know that there are good things out there for you in your future. When she says yes, and you know that there's a wedding coming up. When the doctor confirms, yes, there actually is a bundle of joy on the way, you were right, it's coming. When you hear that there's going to be a a, a new job or a promotion or an unexpected bonus. Those kind of things are exciting. It's good news. The only challenge is, the hard thing is, is not knowing how exactly you might get there or what obstacles might lay in your path before you reach your destination. I can remember the thrill of going down to Salt Creek Beach with my good friend Matt, and there we were, planning out how I was going to propose to Melissa. And we walked it carefully. 
Here's where we're going to walk. I'm going to say this here. Okay, be careful. Don't let her know about the ring when you're, you're here and you hug her and you kiss her and this kind of thing. And then we're going we're gonna to walk up to the cliffside right in front of the Ritz-Carlton there. There's this specific bench. Matt, you're going to be there before me. You're going to make shoo away all the people, making sure no one's there, right? And then we talked about the most important piece of this, and that was that Matt, while I was proposing, would be up in the parking lot swapping out my car with a convertible Porsche, complete with champagne glasses on the dashboard and our favorite soda (laughs) in the car. (laughs) I had to drive. The drive home was filled with just Excitement. What a great day. So exciting. Such great hope, you know, in the future. This is going to be so amazing. A well-conceived plan. But man, when I saw those flashing lights in the rearview mirror and that rudely arriving ticket for going 80 on the 57 freeway. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. It doesn't take much to burst your bubble, does it? Doesn't take much. In Acts 23 to 12, we read of a bubble-bursting moment. A bubble-bursting plan was in the works for Paul. Would you look with me there? This is verse 12 of chapter 23, and it says this, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Well, isn't that nice? It's it's the way it always goes, isn't it? You have light on the horizon. Something good is coming. You're looking forward to it. Then you find out that somebody wants to kill you. That's actually a lot uh, the way it is for a lot of parents they experience that, that same kind of thing when they, they realize that that beautiful diaper-clad package, it's just a deeply embedded black ops sleeper agent sent to wreak havoc on what they thought was their life. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> of course, Paul was no stranger to opposition. No stranger at all. By the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he'd gone through outrageous things. Listen to a few of them here. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent, danger, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And yet here in Acts 23, verse 12, we get an inside look into one of the most sinister plots against him yet. We discover in verse 13 that there were over 40 men Over 40 men who had committed themselves, such hatred for Paul that they banded together, even swore an oath. Look at verse 14. They went to the chief priests and the elders, assuming they would be sympathetic to their plan. They were right. We strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. 
Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. Wink, wink. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here it is. There it is. Well-constructed plan, seems to be. Uh, and if everyone was going to do their part, even though Paul was under extreme guard by the Roman soldiers, if everyone did their part and acted just so, then, as I imagine, one of them, all of them, maybe were lurking in the dark corners of the narrow passageways and alleys of the city, ready to slip out and deal the lethal blow. This wouldn't be the first of this type of assassination attempt. The zealots were known for dealing with their opponents this way. When we read this, we should understand this is a very, very serious threat. Much like some of the threats we might face threats to our work as Christ's witnesses, threats to our worship as God's people. Have you ever had distractions kind of creep in and try to threaten you from being all in in your worship of, of God? Threats to your commitment to stand by and faithfully bless and build up God's people in the local church. Threats to to. to your resistance to that beck and call that continues to come after you and say, you don't need to obey God. You don't, you don't need to live a life without compromise. You don't need to be holy as he is holy. Do you have threats that come your way? You certainly do. Servants of the high king, each of us have a bullseye strapped to our back. You got an enemy out there who doesn't like that you are part of God's chosen race, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, the people for his own possession. And he wants to do all he can to keep you from proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You have threats just like Paul had threats. But let me ask you this. <laughs> Why? I mean, what is it about us and what was it about Paul that people had such a hatred for? I mean, wasn't it clear by now that the charges against him were clearly false? These charges that Paul was preaching against God's people or against his law or against the temple. These were just ridiculous. They were just made up. On the contrary, Paul loved these people. He had given his life, his whole life was dedicated to getting the good news of the gospel out to these people. He devoted himself to telling everyone everywhere how they might be saved. I mean, isn't that an incredible, loving thing to do? You've heard of, of Penn Jillette, the other half of, of Penn and Teller, sworn atheist. Even he recognizes that it's one of the most loving things for a person to do. If they believe that they have the, the one and only answer for humanity, it's, it's the most loving thing that they could do to go share that with other people. Why, why don't people see this? Paul gives the answer in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He writes, in their case, 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And essentially, he's saying, you know, as, as sophisticated, as, as decorated, as, as celebrated, no matter the degrees, no matter the accolades they have attached their resumes, they can't see what Satan has blinded them to. What's more, they're driven by what Paul describes as a spirit of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. He writes, the mystery of lawlessness, it's already at work. It's playing out. It rules in our world. Friends, apart from Jesus, every single one of us, though each of us like to think that we're marching to the beat of our own drum, we're actually marching in lockstep with the one who is dead set on opposing God and, yes, opposing his law, opposing his rule, opposing his people. Since the very first encounter with our kind in Genesis 3, he's been selling us lie after lie after lie. Lies that say, the very one who you, you and I need, the very one that, that you and I were, were made to know, to trust, and yes, even to love, he's actually your biggest enemy is actually your biggest threat. This enemy of ours, he tells us, you know what, you're good on your own. Yeah, you're pretty good on your own. You don't need this God. You could do your own thing your own way. You know, in fact, that, that God, that so-called God, that creator person out there, probably a myth, actually, he just wants to put shackles on you. He wants to enslave you, actually, deprive you of every good thing and make your lives absolutely miserable, if he existed, which he does not. And that has a profound effect on people. It leads us to, well, to be inclined or, or disinclined, I should say, to listen when the maker tells us no, you actually do need me. You, you actually, in fact, need a turnaround. We go, oh, I don't like that. There's actually something terribly gone wrong inside of you. You can't do anything to fix yourselves, and we are averse to that. We want to hear that we're already good. We want to hear that if there's any blindness that we have, well, it's our failure to see that we're actually pretty awesome. We keep looking in the mirror and we say, oh, I'm not that great. Oh, I'm kind of a loser. Oh, I'm this. They're better than me. No, 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 no. You're, you're just blind to the fact that you are everything. You are amazed. You're all that you need. And you need to know that the human spirit, the human will, and the ingenuity and, and innate goodness inside humanity, well, it's going to win out in the end. Oh, we love to hear those things. We, we eat it up, and that fuels even more so our aversion of the gospel. This good news that begins with this reality that Paul explains in Ephesians 2, they were actually dead in our sins. We're averse to the fact that God loves us. What we're really averse to is God loves us. Okay, I kind of get that, but the whole world? Well, I don't want to hear that. We're oppressors and oppressed? He loves us both? No, 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 no. He can't do that. You mean he wants, he's calling all of us to turn from our sin, to turn back to him? He's going to forgive all of us? 
And he's going to give all of us life, free us from the shackles of death. No, 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 no. No, it can't, can't be. So yeah, I guess when you think about it, we shouldn't be surprised when there's opposition to what this whole Jesus thing is about. Jesus said, actually, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before I hated you. If you're of the world, well, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. You know, I think it's really interesting here, as a side point, that the situation that Paul finds himself here in Acts 23, you might remember back in Philippians 3, Paul said, I, I want to know something. I, I, you know, I've had all these accolades, all this incredible life. You know, all of it is just trash compared to one thing. One thing I really want, and that is to know him, know Christ, and the power of his resurrection. And probably most people would say, yeah, yeah, yeah power of his resurrection, that sounds pretty good. But then he says, and I want to share in his sufferings. And we go, oh, maybe not. <laughs> One commentator points this out. Both Jesus and Paul were Jews, preachers of the gospel to their people, guilty of no crime, yet both were plotted against. Both stood before a confused Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish high council, and both were prisoners in Fort Antonia. If that doesn't look like sharing in the sufferings of Christ, then I don't know what is. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> okay, now don't panic. I know we have 20 verses left to get through here. But we're going to make a base jump, and we're going to fly to the bottom and land on a key takeaway here. The opposition was real. The conspiracy, it had been hatched. The threat, it hung like a storm on the horizon. What impact was this going to have on God's plans? And you're all quaking in your seats in utter suspense, thinking this might really fall apart. <laughs> Is it possible that what Paul was told by Jesus actually wasn't true? Remember that little window he gave him into the future? Well, I, I don't know. I heard about this conspiracy here. I, I, I don't know if it's actually going to come true. Maybe his story actually was going to end in Jerusalem. Hmm. Or, on the other hand, for those who really think God is big and trust that he can do great and mighty things far beyond all that we ask or think, maybe he's going to do something big. Maybe lightning from heaven. Maybe a great earthquake is just going to swallow all these people up. What's going to be? This is probably going to be pretty exciting here. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And to some we go, what, what's this? Paul has a family? What? Paul has a sister? Paul has a nephew? We didn't know about this. Well, we didn't because the Bible doesn't talk anything about Paul's family other than this place. Maybe you could say Romans 16 kind of alludes to his family as he says, greet my kinsmen here, my kinsmen there. But we really don't know what those relationships were. Were they spiritual relationships? We don't know. Now, who is this nephew? And how does he hear about this great plan, this conspiracy that's being hatched here? Well, we don't know, but somehow he finds out. So he goes into the barracks and he tells Paul, 16, the end of 16. 
So we must assume that maybe it's because the, the, the commander found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, or maybe it's due to the fact that there were no real criminal charges laid yet, that Paul, he's still allowed some freedom. He's allowed visitors to come and go, apparently. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune, and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me, asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. And that's when the tribune, probably at this point, really, really wanting to figure this whole Paul situation out, he takes this young man by the hand. I'm guessing he must be really young, because if he was any older than, say, eight, and he's taking him by the hand, this this could be weird. So he's probably probably very young. He takes him by the hand, takes him to uh, a place where they have a little bit more privacy, and he asks him what he has to say. Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, this isn't the thunder and lightning way that we might think that God protects his plans, is it? What's more, how likely do we think it is that someone in high command would actually listen to this, this young kid? Oh, yeah, I, I hear something you know, from a kid on the playground here at the school, and I go, yeah, okay, well, let me talk to your teacher. But he does. He listens. Isn't it interesting how sometimes God uses the most humble, the most ordinary means to protect and bring about his plans? Do you ever stop to consider what normal, everyday circumstances are happening in your life that are leading that are directing, that even God is working through to bring about his ultimate plans. Remember, we read Ephesians 1. He's bringing all things together to himself. That's what, we're gonna, that's what we see going on here. To the naked eye, the situation, it looks really bleak. Things seem like they're on the verge of just spinning, completely out of control. But are they? No, they're not. And that's because behind the curtain, God is in control. And he is absolutely able and will accomplish his purposes, even through the most sinister of of ill intentions his opponents can muster up. Isaiah 54, 17 says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. That's said with confidence by a God who is in control, who can guarantee it, because nothing is outside of his scope, his authority. Well, verse 23 to 25, they tell us the Roman commander, he orders 200 soldiers 
and then 70 horsemen, and then 200 spearmen to get ready for a night mission. The plan, put Paul on a horse, we're going to send him out to the coast, to Caesarea, which is the capital of the province of Judea. And he sends a letter to the governor, Felix, who lives there. And in the letter, he explains to Felix, in his own way, all of the things that have transpired thus far. Of course, though, he's very careful to leave out a few details, and... I personally don't blame him. He doesn't uh, tell him how he mistook Paul for that Egyptian prophet that tried to bring the walls of Jerusalem down way back in the day. He doesn't tell him how he almost did the unthinkable in flogging accidentally a Roman citizen. No, we'll leave that out. But, But he conveys what's important here. He writes in verse 28, And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, there are a lot of things that we could say about the Roman government. It's certainly safe to say that none of these officials, not Claudius Lysias, this commander, not Felix, uh, the governor, nor his successor, who we'll read about in a few weeks, Festus, nor King Agrippa, nor Caesar himself, none of these men were believers. It's very safe to say that. They are not Christians. They are secular leaders who are self-interested and not at all concerned about helping the plans of God. That's just not on their radar. We're not going to do that. That's not what we're about here. And yet, and yet, they have a commitment to Roman law and justice, and order. And we have to recognize that as they follow those things, they're actually operating in line with God's will. (laughs) And actually, in a way, are gifts of God here. What we see happening in Acts 23 is actually precisely what God God establishes governments to do. Romans 13 helps us to see that. Uh, That's where Paul reminds us that governing authorities, they're instituted by God. He ordains that they should exist, not for power-hungry, oppressive purposes, but for the purpose of maintaining order and keeping human evil in check so that People under their watch might, might continue to exist and survive. A good government, or at least one that, that is doing what God intends it should do, according to Romans 13, is a government that brings justice to those who do wrong, and it also takes up the sword to defend the people in its care. The Romans as riddled with problems and sinful motivations and outright pagan practices as they were. Here in Acts 23, they're operating in line with God's intended purposes. This is so important for us to see. And in doing so, 
is they go to these extreme lengths. Would you, would you agree? Extreme lengths. Uh, 470 men dedicated to safely delivering Paul, the apostle, to Caesarea. This is incredible. They go to these extraordinary events for one of their citizens. And as they do so, they are unknowingly participants in God's sovereign plan to deliver Paul to Rome. You know, in and through an ordinary world, God is bringing about his extraordinary purposes. In and through an ordinary world, God is bringing about his extraordinary purposes. It's so important for us to remember because we are so prone to forget that in the ordinary happenings or the terrible happenings in our world that our God is still at work. Well, simply summarize what happens in the remainder of this chapter. The soldiers, they carry out their commander's orders. They stop uh, for an overnight in Antipatris, which is the regular layover on the way to Caesarea. From there, I believe they're thinking the danger is averted, so most of them return or don't go on. This, only the 70 horsemen now continue with Paul for the rest of the journey. Once at Caesarea, Paul is presented to the governor. He reads the letter. He determines, okay, is Paul in my jurisdiction? jurisdiction? Yes, he is. Okay. And he declares, well, I'll reside over this hearing when Paul's accusers arrive. That's it. It's the end of the chapter. We made it. <laughs> Nothing really extraordinary going on here. Nothing really exciting going on here. It's just Romans carrying out their orders, walking through their reg regular procedures, doing what it is that they do. Oh, and doing exactly what Paul's sovereign God wanted them to do. Friends, do you see that? Do you see how in the midst of serious threat, in the face of people so thirsty for spilling Paul's blood that they collectively vow, we're not going to taste anything else until this craving is satisfied. And in the midst of that, God is quietly, powerfully, working. God didn't know how, uh, Paul didn't know how God was going to come through on his declaration that he is going to be able to be a witness in Rome. He didn't know how that was going to happen. If I were in his shoes, my nephew shows up, tells me that 40 plus men are conspiring against me. They're going to kill me. I would be freaking out. We don't know how Paul was feeling. We don't know what he was thinking. That's not the point. The point is that even in an ordinary, unholy, ill-intentioned, self-interested world, God is sovereignly working to bring about his plans. Does God have plans for your future? If your faith is in Jesus, you better believe that he does. He's given you a window into some tremendous things that are on the way. Some tremendous promises he has made, right? They go way beyond the scope of your 80 or so years on this planet. 
And there are times when you feel like the opposing forces, the opposing plans out there are just too great. There are going to be moments when it seems like it's more likely that your future is just going to go to hell in a handbasket. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. God uses ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. You've been given an extraordinary, extraordinary calling, yes? Extraordinary. All kinds of threats, all kinds of temptations, all kinds of opportunities that you're going to face. Don't lose heart. Stay the course. Take each new breath as an opportunity to trust, to be faithful, to obey, to persevere. You may remember, uh, you might be familiar with another man of God way back in the day. David was singled out as a man after God's own heart. He was given a look through a little window of his own. And God revealed to him, one day you're going to be king. <laughs> Guess what? That took quite a while. He would spend years on the run for his life under threat of his predecessor. Yet as we look through the book of 1 Samuel, what do we see? Well, we see just like God does for Paul, God uses ordinary means to protect David. Let me just read to you one of David's prayers and see if this might be a prayer that you and I should have in our hearts. Be gracious to me. This is Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. As we face opposition of many kinds, may that be our prayer as well. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we are only able to do that because of you, calling us out of darkness, calling us to yourself, redeeming us, Lord, transforming us, beginning a good work inside of us that we might be made holy and walk into your presence freely, unafraid, rejoicing, knowing you, 
celebrating and enjoying you. Father, thank you for your goodness towards us. And Father, as we continue to press on, Lord, remind us of the promises that you have given. Remind us of the hope that we have, the inheritance that is there, that you are preparing a place, that you are coming back, that we will be with you, that we will have transformed, glorious bodies in an eternal future with our Lord and Savior. We thank you and praise you, Lord. May our eyes stay fixed there, and may we remember that even in the ordinary circumstances that mark our lives, that you are working sovereignly, leading all things to yourself, carrying out your plan for our good and your glory. We love you and pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbf.com oc.org.